Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Nick at Night Show. <clears throat> we have all kinds of things on the menu for you this evening. Um, I almost feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. I don't know where to start. I did have a... a <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> a little bit of a challenge getting to the studio this evening. Um, the weather was uh, a lot of things, but predictable wasn't one of them. And it wasn't that the weather was bad constantly, as I'm sure if you've looked outside, you'll you'll realize. But one minute was snowing, and the next minute it was clear. And the next minute it was snowing so thick you couldn't see the end of the hood. It was just ridiculous. So we managed to get here, and here we are. So I hope you enjoy this evening's show. Um, there's a whole bunch of different things that I could start with. But let me, uh, let's see, where did it go? There is, oh, I know where it is. As you're well aware of this whole, there's a whole, um, there's, let me put it to you this way. There's an issue. We have issues. And Patrick Brown has been at the center of a lot of these issues in, in the province. And I, I hit the I don't want to say the boiling point. That would be wrong. And before I go any further, I should give you the call-in numbers if I want anybody to call. All right. Uh, the phone numbers you can reach me at are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. And you can also send me an email to nick at latenightcouncil.com. I'll keep my email box open, and then I get a chance, I'll check it. And if I can answer the questions on the air, I will certainly do that. Um, so anyway, getting back to things, this whole thing started, if you remember, uh, the, the thing that kind of blew the lid off, it might be a better way to put it, was the story of Jay Tysick and then a couple of other people who were running for uh, to become the nominated candidates to, hold, to bear the flag for um, uh, the conservatives in the next upcoming election. So the problem is uh, there was some interference. There was some shenanigans went on, and I don't need to relate the whole story all over again. But the bottom line is that's kind of where things got started and where they went downhill um, from the point of view of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Uh, Patrick brought this stuff on himself. This is all self-inflicted wounds. And the reason I say that is because... He did not have to go through what he did. If he just let the grassroots decide who the candidates were going to be in the different ridings, there's about 10 or 15 ridings where there was some monkey business going on. Um, the, most, the one I'm most familiar with, of course, is the one here in Carleton with Jay Tysick and Golda Gamari and that whole cast of characters. And after a while, you watch this go on, you scratch your head, think, what is, you know, why is this going on? Either Patrick Brown, actually it goes back even farther than that. It goes back to a time when uh, Patrick Brown, after he became elected, said that associating with uh, social conservatives and landowners was a big mistake, and he was sorry that he'd done it. Well, when you throw 30% of your constituency under the bus, you're not doing yourself any favors. Then the meddling came with what's going on in the riding associations, where hand-picked, uh, hand-picked uh, candidates or nominees were dropped in and rules were bent and twisted out of, all, out of conformity so that those hand-picked uh, candidates would likely be the ones to, be, to win the nomination. <sighs> well, after a while, 
it became clear to me that obviously um, Mr. Brown had a different agenda than what we thought. Now, I don't mean to say I told you so, but I did warn people since before when the whole leadership for the Conservative Party of Ontario was being run that I didn't like Patrick Brown as a politician. I didn't think he was genuine. I didn't think he was the real deal, but he fooled a tremendous amount of people. It doesn't make me very smart. It just means there was something about him I didn't like. I just, he just didn't come off as, as somebody that I wanted to put my faith in. So got to a point where I just I had to do something. So I wrote an open letter, and I posted it on Facebook. I'm going to share it with you because uh, if you didn't get a chance to see it on Facebook, uh, I think you need to hear it cause, because based on the responses I got on Facebook, this is not a, a unique or... Um, um, unusual point of view. So let me share it with you. It's addressed to Patrick Brown, leader PC Party of Ontario. And it's me doing the writing. Mr. Brown, it is with great sadness that I feel obligated to inform you that because of your refusal to stand up for conservative values and oppose the Wynn government along with the corrosive and damages, damaging and destructive policies, many of which you have embraced, like the carbon tax, the scandalous sex ed curriculum, and the refusal to state clearly your plan to reverse the never-ending never ending increases in the price of energy in this province, I am left with no choice but to refuse to either support financially or vote for any PC candidate during the next provincial election. I am not alone in this. I scrolled up, so i got to find it. There it is. There are many former supporters that feel the same way I do, so unless there's an immediate reversal of policy by your party and return not only to conservative values, but to a deep and abiding respect for our democratic institutions in areas such as candidate selection at the local riding level, I'm calling for your resignation as leader now so that a new leadership contest might be held in Ontario with, with enough time to select a leader that more closely reflects the values of the party's core supporters. As I stated when I began this letter, I do this with a heavy heart, but feel you have abandoned not only me, but tens of thousands of people who would have gladly supported you and the PC party had you stayed true to the principles this party is supposed to be built upon. The fact that it no longer does is your ongoing and ever-growing problem. Nick Vandegrat, former PC supporter. Uh, to put it mildly, that got quite a, quite a response. Now, there is on um, my Facebook page, a, um, a petition that's up there. If you want to just go and search the page, you'll find it. And it's the same letter in petition form. And every time somebody signs it, he gets an email telling them that somebody else has signed that petition. Now, will it make a difference in the long run? Who knows? I've never, to tell you the truth, I've never really been a huge supporter of petitions because they don't normally achieve their goals. But if we flood his email account with hundreds and hundreds of these letters, who knows what will happen. And it's certainly better than doing nothing. Because the, the, the Progressive Conservative Party, as we know it today, is nothing more than liberal in another, you know, in a different colored suit. And I don't see how we advance this. I've had this discussion on Facebook um, in different threads and forums where they say, well, you're, <laughs> way to go, Nick. If you keep this up, the Liberals will win. And my answer is, so what? If the Liberals win, the Conservatives win, it doesn't matter. We get the same heap of garbage. They both, all three major parties, have the basic, basically the same platform. So how can we win, even if we win? The problem isn't who's running the, country, the province. The, the problem is how. 
are we going to get rid of the Green Energy Act? Are we going to have some common sense take over in, in, the price of ener- in the price of electricity? Are we going to get rid of a carbon tax? Are we going to have something done about the sex ed curriculum? No. Nobody running for ma- in a major part. There's no plank in anybody's platform, NDP, liberal, or conservative, that's going to deal with those issues. And what kind of leader wants to throw 30% of his constituency out the window hoping to gain 40% or more from the middle of the road where the other two parties are already fishing for votes. Now, I mean, think of this. Here's, the, here's an analogy to help you understand the folly of this. Let's say that you're driving along and you've, you, you're, you bought a Mercedes or a BMW and you really love the car. And it's a ni- they're nice cars. I mean, who would want one? So, <coughs> excuse me. So you pull up, somebody pulls up beside you in a VW Bug and says, hey, why don't you come on over here and buy one of these? They're made in Germany, too. You're driving a BMW or Mercedes, and you're going to give it up for a, for a, a VW. Nothing wrong, nothing against the Beetle, but they're not a Mercedes or a BMW, are they? They've already got everything they want where they are. They're not going to go over and vote for a different party just because they look like the party that they're voting for now. That's the kind of logic being employed here. It doesn't make a single shred of sense. Not a single shred of sense. And yet it seems to be embraced. Now, let me see if I can find this. Because Patrick Brown came out and he talked about his stand on the carbon tax. And if I... Did I bring it? No. Okay. When I find it, I'll dig it up for you. As a matter of fact, what we'll do is we'll take a break. When I get back, I should have it by then, and then I'll read you Patrick Brown's response, his response to the carbon tax. Oh, boy. It's a winner, I'll tell you. years I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them council sent you. That'll make them smile.
All right. I found it. It's not it's not about the uh, car cap. It's not about the um carbon tax. It's about the cap and trade system. And Patrick Brown goes on to say this. This is dated Monday, January tw- Jan- Monday, the 2nd of January, 2017. <sighs> the people of Ontario work hard every single day but just can't seem to get ahead after paying some of the highest hydro bills in North America and exorbitant liberal taxes and fees that never seem to never seem to stop going up. And he goes on for a paragraph or two, uh, you know, bemoaning what Kathleen Wynne is doing to the province. But um, let me jump in here. This cash and grab will cost Ontario family and businesses roughly $2 billion billion each year for the Wynne Liberals to spend on any uh, scandal or pet project they dream up next. It's also concerning that according to Ontario's Auditor General, we we haven't seen... we. Why is this not happening the way oh we will not even see meaningful emissions reductions here in Ontario that through this new through this new scheme instead the government's plan will to have Ontario businesses have Ontario business sending money to California with less than 20% of the government's planned reductions occurring at home all right now this is where it really comes off the rails. If their plan was really about the environment, the government would keep the money raised through cap-and-trade as a liberal slush fund. This money then could be going back towards the already burdened Ontario residents and businesses. Instead, it's clear that this is nothing more than a cap-and-trade tra- cap cap cash grab by a broke, tired, and reckless government. If I am fortunate enough to earn the trust of Ontarios to become the next premier, I will ensure a revenue-neutral plan that will reduce emissions and put money back in the pockets of it. Look. Patrick, first of all, there's no. What is the point of a car of a revenue neutral tax? All you're doing, you know what that's like. It's like running a marathon on a treadmill. You're going through the motions, but you're not getting anywhere. What's the point? If it's revenue neutral, don't bother. Because it means they're not they're not supposed to make any money on the deal. They just take money in over here and then they spit it out over there. I've never seen a, a truly revenue-neutral tax because those things, taxes by their nature, are not revenue-neutral. And secondly, <sighs> reducing emissions. We all want clean water, clean air, and clean soil. But what this does is this promotes the ongoing lie of global warming, of man-made global warming. And I just wish somebody would grab him by the collar and say, look, you want to do something for the people of Ontario? Scrap the cap and trade, kill the carbon tax, cut taxes on fuel, do something substantive, reduce the size of government, be a conservative for crying out loud. So this is the kind of leadership we're getting out of Patrick Brown, which is why I'm saying, so what he's basically saying in this letter is don't do it her way, let me do it my way. What's the it? It's running a cap-and-trade system. We don't need a cap-and-trade system. We do not need a revenue-neutral carbon tax. We don't need either one of those things. We need government to get out of our way so we can go out and be prosperous. And they will be the beneficiaries of that because of our prosperity. You ever hear the old, the old story, the old saying, you can't get blood out of a stone? Well, holy smokes, that the stone's been ground to gravel and they're still looking for more. So this is the kind of thing that just makes me lose my mind when I hear it. I I just get so frustrated when I read this stuff. Because if, look, 
If you and I are smart enough to know the carbon dioxide gas is not only not pollution, it's the single most important gas on the planet because without it we'd all die. I mean, just, it's plant food for crying out loud. And yet over and over and over again, our governments at every level are forcing this stuff down our throats. It's not about the environment, folks. It never has been. It's a wealth transfer system, and that's all it is. It's nothing but socialism on a massive scale. And this is the kind of stuff that makes me crazy. 343-700-4390 or 844-562-4766. If you got something you want to say on that, by all means, go ahead. But I'm really calling into question the leadership of Patrick Brown and his brain trust down there in, in, in um, Queens Park. Because this kind of leadership we can get on any street corner. This is not the bold, forward-thinking, uh, you know, uh, conservative leadership we need in order to turn this province around. This is not, as Einstein would say, the kind of thinking that created the problem will never be the kind of thinking that solved it. Man, is that true. That is just blows my mind. So that's, that's the thing that, that just got me lit up now. There's, uh, let's see, where did it go? Oh, yes. Now, speaking of Ontario, another brilliant idea. Look, over my broadcast career, I have many times said recycling is an utter waste of time. It is an utter waste of money and resources. Well, hang on to your hats, folks, because we're in for more. Well, first of all, let me explain why I say that. Because everybody's out there scratching their head. What are you talking about? Waste of time and money. Look, when first of all, you, you can tell when something's a waste of time or is going to cost a lot more than... The, there's No one's done a cost-benefit analysis. And something's going to cost you a lot more than any benefit you get out of it is if they have to force you to do something by writ of law. In other words, if they have to pass a bylaw that says everybody has to recycle, and here's the color of bin you have to put all your plastics and all that stuff in, then you know that it's already a failure. If there was any... I have a water bottle here that I've been sipping out of all night. And let's say for the sake of argument, well, it's made of plastic. A very nice little bottle. Well, when I'm done with it, i got two choices. Throw it in the garbage or throw it in recycling. If I throw it in the recycling, it'll probably end up in the garbage anyway. Because that's what happens to a lot of the recycling stuff. So there's that. But what is plastic in the first place? You realize it's nothing really but hardened gasoline. It's made from the refining of fossil fuels. It's a byproduct. We're not running out of plastic. There are some things worth recycling. Aluminum is one. Copper is another. Why? Because it's so expensive to make in the first place. So it actually does make sense to recycle those things. But plastic? You're far better off to take this thing and grind it up into powder and burn it in, an inc- in a high-efficiency incinerator and then take the energy that is released when you burn it, boil water, run a steam turbine, connect it to a generator, and make cheap electrical power. You don't need solar plants. You don't need wind turbines. Think of the amount of power that's laying in the ground in refuse that we could get rid of. So that's why I've always said it's a waste of time. There's better ways to deal with this stuff. You don't have time. Your life is busy enough. You don't have to spend 
how much time a week to figuring out what color the rainbow this thing is supposed to go in in the color of the box that you're supposed to put at the end of your driveway just because the mayor or the council or whatever level of government says so. If it was really worth it, why don't they buy? Let's say this bottle cost $1.25 to buy. Okay, so that means part of the price is for the bottle. I can't buy the bottle. I can't buy the water and leave the bottle behind when I walk out of the store. I'd have a you know a pocket full of wet. So you buy the when you buy the bottle, you buy the plastic too. That means it's your property. So why would you give it away? If there's any value in it, say, look, if you want my recycling, fine, pay me for it. I'll give you everything you want. Give me, a, uh, give me, I don't know, 50 cents a pound. Whatever makes sense. But there is no money in it. That's why they don't do that. If anything has value in it, after it's done being used, people will find a way to, re, to, to turn that into some kind of industry. Take pallets, for instance. You know, shipping pallets that you put in the back, you put all the, the product on, when you put it in the back of a truck and send it across the country. That's a big business. Do you know why? Especially the big orange ones that are made out of oak, they're, they are very expensive. And there's a market in reclaiming them and making sure they don't go to waste because they're worth the effort. So anyway, the whole point is don't give away your private property just because somebody in a council chair somewhere says you should. They don't phrase it like that, but that's what it is. All right, so anyway, this is the article that, uh, that's making me pull my hair out. The Ontario government is planning a total revamp of the province's garbage handling programs from blue boxes to fluorescent bulbs to kitchen scraps, hoping to cut the amount of waste we make by 80% over the next 35 years. You know there's a, a golden rule that doesn't change, and that rule is that human beings in North America make three pounds of garbage a day. You're gonna, it doesn't matter what you do, you are going to create a certain amount of waste just by living when you go to the grocery store, okay, you're going to bring home stuff. They package it to keep it safe, fresh, or unbroken, right? It's got that, that stuff has weight. Whether it's a, a box that you put the tomatoes in or water bottles or whatever it is, okay, the egg cartons, whatever. All that stuff has weight and mass, and it doesn't matter what the, all the, this doesn't change how much waste you create. It just breaks it up in little smaller piles scattered all over the place. They're just moving deck chairs on the Titanic. All right. It's also hoping to make manufacturers pay for the whole thing by some process that'll be way less politically disastrous than the Ecofee sales tax that knocked the liberals for a loop six years ago when it turned out consumers hated paying the extra disposal fees for stuff they were only just buying. Stop the presses. If you're a water bottling company and they say, you've got to pay for the recycling of those water bottles, they'll shrug and they'll say, well, all right, if we have to, if that's the law, then we'll do it. But guess what happens to the price of water in that bottle or the price of the product in that package? <laughs> you think that, people don't stop to think that every time you raise taxes on a business, the business has to look at it as a cost of doing business, and there's only one way. They come up with a revenue to pay that tax. When you buy whatever it is built into the price, 
is that tax. So you are the one that's going to pay for this. They don't, they, they do this because a bunch of people who don't know the first thing about economics all go, hey, don't you, recycling, make the, make the manufacturer pay. And the manufacturer just shakes his head and go, what a bunch of idiots. Do they really think the Ford Motor Company is going to pay to have a car recycled and have you not foot the bill? Do you think that Westinghouse is going to have a refrigerator made that includes within it the, the, that they're forced to pay for the recycling of that refrigerator and not have you pay for it? Refrigerators and cars are just going to get more expensive, and so is everything else. That's what's wrong with this. Okay, back to the article. This scheme is laid out in document in a document from the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change. Why we have a ministry called that in the first place beyond me? Called Strategy for a Waste-Free Ontario. Building the circular economy, which has been in development for years now, is in its final round of public comments. The notion of a circular economy is a trendy version of the familiar reduce, reuse, and recycle. So it's the same old, this is yesterday's breakfast warmed over again. That's all this is. There's nothing new here. Use less raw material, throw less away, mine the stuff you do throw away for the parts that can be reprocessed and find useful again. It all sounds good, but it comes back to who pays. This stuff, everything has to be paid for somehow by somebody somewhere. And when you, when, you know, I think part of it goes back to our healthcare system. Everybody gets caught up in this idea of free healthcare, right? And they translate that and they carry that over to other areas. Well, I want free this and I want free. There's no such thing as free. There's nothing that's free. You cannot walk down the street and say, I want a free meal. Because you might not pay for it, but somebody does. Somebody somewhere is going to have to work a little bit harder, pay a little higher tax for you to have that free meal. And maybe it's you paying for somebody else. We get all upset when we see people on, on welfare especially some of these uh, Islamic guys who come over with three and four wives and 42 kids, and they all go on welfare. We all get mad at that, and we should. That's a huge waste of money. But we never think about it when it applies in other areas. It's the same principle. You have a bunch of people out there saying, what, how can I get more for myself without actually paying for it? And they don't realize that they pay for it because it's like, look, if somebody goes in and steals stock, we all get this example. If you go into a store and you steal something, you slip it in your jacket pocket, and maybe it's a $100 item or a $50 item or whatever it is, right? You put it in your pocket, out the door you go. Everybody has to pay for that because the store wants to stay in business. They have to stay, they have to stay in business. They want to pay their employees, right? If they want to do all the things that, people expect businesses to do you've got to so they have to take that loss because that's a hundred percent loss and spread it over the other products that are on the shelf so everybody pays for the theft of whatever it is that joe or jane blow stole that's why they have all these do shopkeepers hurt all of us that's what they're talking about shops shoplifters i should say and it's more of the same kind of nonsense. This is that the socialistic mindset 
is so pervasive in Canada that we actually believe these press releases. This is just another example. Recycling just doesn't make sense. Not the way we do it. If you want to do it and use, you know, you realize a high-efficiency incinerator is the ultimate in recycling because you take the value from something and you draw that value out and you put it back to work. So it can do something else that's really productive, like make electricity. You realize in the same process, you could go to um, a place where the water quality is really bad, okay, and as long as you've got a supply of fuel, like enough garbage laying around, you could put it in a distiller and give clean water. Think about third world countries with huge pollution problems. Pick any country you want to. Go down into the Caribbean and some of these little islands. Not much fresh water, all kinds of salt, and they have real problems with when these um, cruise ships come in. They got to deal with the garbage. Some of them put them on barges, float them out to sea, and drop them to the bottom. Is that what you want? You know, this, just as an example. So run an efficiency energy from an efficient waste plant. Take the heat, clean and get clean water in the process. So you don't have to depend just on rainwater or water being trucked into the island by ship or something. Just so many other ways of doing it. Think outside the box. You don't have to do it just one way just because, you know, that's the way we've always done it or that's the way a particular organization wants it done. Anyway, so that's why this kind of stuff makes me crazy. We'll take a break on the Nick at Night Show and we'll be back with more right after this. Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com.
Okay, thanks for staying with us, folks. I want to uh, move on to a little bit different topic. This one is about our boy king. You know, uh, it'd be nice if I could skip a week talking about this guy, but holy smokes. Okay, this is from Mike Blanch Blanchfield, the Canadian Press. It's written on in December, uh, December, the 30th of the month. Uh, so it was one of the last, last stories filed for the year, I would imagine. But we have just spent the last 15 years or so making a name for ourselves on the battlefield. Now, whether you believe in the Afghani war, or not, the war in Afghanistan or not, that's a separate issue. But our men-at-arms have done us proud. They have been unbelievable in their ability to, to um, carry out their mission and with, um, you know, with great success. Certainly they are one of the, the best armies in the world. And these guys have to be taken seriously. I mean, our guys in uniform have just done a stellar job. They were allowed as much as possible to fight like a real army instead of having their hands tied behind their back. They did have some um, rules of engagement that, you know, kind of baffled the mind at certain times. But for the most part, uh, given the situation, they did an unbelievable job. And we went from uh, a reputation of peacekeeping to the ability to make peace. And that's what armies are all about. Armies are not policemen in green uniforms. They are not international meals on wheels. They are not, um, you know, specialists in reconstruction. Um, the whole purpose of a military is to kill people and break things. If you want to get right down to the nitty-gritty, that's what they're for. Now, fortunately, we don't have to do that very often. Now, why am I going on about this? Because Justin Trudeau wants to return to the good old days of peacekeeping. Look, uh, my wife and I watched a documentary uh, about uh, Rwanda, uh, the whole bloodbath that took place there in 19, I think it was 94, certainly mid-90s anyway, when Romeo Dallaire was the general there, and how he, in one, in several instances, he was guarding a compound, a soccer stadium or something like that, with 13,000 people in it. And his thinly spread troops were defending them and keeping them safe. And the UN called him and said, you need to go take your troops over to this other town, uh, and there's some Belgian nationals there, and you need to um, rescue those Belgian nationals and get them to the airport and get them out of there. But if he, did, if he does that, then those 13,000 people in that stadium were just, it was like signing their death warrant. Because he couldn't be in two places at once. He didn't have the troops. He didn't have the, the equipment, the personnel, um, you know, the logistics, supplies, ammunition, and so on to be able to fulfill that mandate and go rescue them. So by choosing one, it was a death sentence for the other. But the UN only cared about the, you know, the, um, they only cared about the dignitaries. They didn't care about the commoner. Now, this is part of the reason why I hate the United Nations. I simply have no use for them. I think they're a disaster, no matter how you slice it. And they don't do anything well and most things poorly. But according to this, Justin Trudeau, the boy king, he and his sandbox playmates have decided that it's time to get back on the world stage. Let me share this with you. Canadian bureaucrats pondered using the personal brand of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to sell the world on the merits of the country's return to peacekeeping. 
using the Prime Minister's personal appeal was seen by senior foreign minister, ministry officials as one of the possible framing techniques for explaining Can Can sorry, Canada's decision to devote more military resources to United Nations peacekeeping operations. In other words, this also is setting them up to fail. Because this is not what soldiers are for. The whole idea of peacekeeping is what police do. They keep the peace. That's why they're called peace officers. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen are there to make war or to be ready to make war when their government decides that it's time. That's what they're for. Now, they have a bunch of ancillary duties they can do and are often called on to do, but that's not their primary function. Anyway, I digress. So he's setting them up to fail. He's setting them up for more Rwanda, for more Balkans. Imagine, uh, imagine you're a peacekeeper. You're 24 years old. You're a corporal with, let's say, the PPCLI. And you're in the Balkans, and there's uh, a big fight between the Croats and the Serbs, and one side's in, in the other side's village, and you stand there with your rifle in your hands, knowing that unless they point a weapon at you specifically, you cannot do a thing. And you know that in that building you're looking at, women and children are being raped and murdered. And there's not a thing you can do about it. And then the person who's doing the raping and the murdering walks out drunk, bragging about it, flipping you the bird, because he knows you can't do anything. What kind of toll does that take on your on your mind? You've got everything with you that you, because my first, the first inclination I would have was to drop would be to drop the guy, and I'm sure that's a probably a pretty common human response, in defense of 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 the innocence that's being destroyed in that building. You know that's what you're there to protect. A soldier does not hate what's in front of him; he loves what's behind him. In other words. Uh, you know, he's there to protect and defend those who can't against stuff like this. And it's happening in front of him, and everything in him is screaming to do something about it. But the UN has said, can't do it. If you do, you go to jail. So that's the kind of situation these guys find themselves in, and this is what Trudeau is setting them up for again. Okay. Once a traditional role for the Canadian forces, it was all but abandoned in the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States. See, okay, on the United States, when the military focused on counterterrorism and and the fighting in Afghanistan. First of all, the attack wasn't just on the United States; it was on Western democracy. There wasn't just Americans in that tower. The 26 Canadians died in that tower. 26 or 27 in the in those towers in that attack. Trudeau promised during the 2015 federal election that Canada would focus more on UN peacekeeping operations, and the government has since committed 600 troops and 450 million to as, to as yet an unspecified mission or a combination of deployments. In January, officials of the Global Affairs Canada, the newly renamed Foreign Affairs Department, conveyed, convened a day-long strategy meeting with government officials and experts on how to turn that problem promise into policy. This is a promise he should forget. This is a promise he should break. It's funny how this guy always keeps the promises he shouldn't and breaks the ones he should. You know, it's just he gets it backwards every time. We don't need peacekeepers. 
We need people who are willing to go in and do what it takes to get the job done and come home again and be so good at it that nobody else wants to ever take us on. Do you think that Chuck Norris ever has to worry about his personal safety when he's walking down the street? No, because anybody who knows what he is knows what he is knows what he can do. Well, we need to be the Chuck, one of the Chuck Norrises of the world. We don't have to be an armed camp by any stretch. But the one thing these slugs respect is strength and the willingness to use it. And all he's doing is destroying everything that we've accomplished over the last 15 years. So isn't that just ducky? I'm telling you, man, this, this guy, he's a disaster. Now, where did it go? Oh, yes. On another international note, on an international note, <laughs> you know, it's, it's been funny. I've been watching what's going on south of the border with, with uh, Trump. And whether you love him or hate him, it doesn't matter now. He's POTUS. He's going to be the president of the United States. And Obama uh, decided that because of this whole hacking thing, which has turned out to be nothing but a whole a hoax. As a matter of fact, there's more links to Hydro One than there are to the Russians with this electronic hacking. You remember that story where the, uh, Obama and the Democrats blamed some of the election irregularities or scandals or whatever they were on Russians hacking, and there was this big hacking the system and Trump being aligned with the Russians, and they tried to make this link. Well, it turns out not only is that link not there, we, there are more links to, to um, Hydro One and this whole scandal than there is for the Russians. So anyway, Obama decided he was going to close the, uh, the Russian embassy and kick 35 U U.S. Em embassy uh, staff out and send them back to Russia. <laughs> well, Putin said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that over here. As a matter of fact, I am going to invite, and this took place over the holidays, of course, I'm going to invite the American staff and their children to a Christmas party, <laughs> to a, a Russian Orthodox Christmas party. Now, what that says is that Obama doesn't know the first thing about class. <laughs> and Putin not only is a political... He, he read the situation right, and he showed a tremendous amount of class by not engaging in this tit-for-tat politics. And Trump comes out and says, he's, he, that was a good idea. Here's a story. President-elect Donald Trump on Friday expressed his appreciation to Vladimir Putin after the Russian president said he would not expel American diplomats in response to the new U.S. sanctions over hacking as a gesture to the, to the incoming administration. Great move on delay. Uh, that was by uh, great move on delay. Trump tweeted Friday, I always knew he was very smart. The tweet is Trump's latest nod to Putin, who is, whom he praised as a strong leader. You know something? There's a difference. One of the differences between, because a lot of people will say, well, didn't Trudeau praise China? Yeah, well, there's a difference. Saying somebody's a strong leader doesn't endorse their politics. It just says this guy is a force to be reckoned with. What Justin Trudeau did was said, oh, yeah, China, great, wonderful, love it. He's, he's talking about a communist dictatorship. Now, let's not forget that Putin is not, as, as for all the respect he's getting around the world, he's still a thug. He's still KGB. He's still not a nice guy. But he's, he, he's winning more points for being a real-world leader than Obama ever could. So just that's, all, that's the only thing that, uh, that uh, 
Donald Trump was talking about there. He said, yeah, that's, that's real leadership. That's, he's, he's, he's doing that right. So there was, oh, boy. It was just fun to watch. And it's the, the more, there's actually a story in the news tonight about um, um, all the good stuff that's going on with Putin, not put Putin, with uh, Trump down, down the States, about how companies are coming back, how um, car manufacturers are moving back from Mexico, how uh, uh, other companies are employing, are going to be employing another 10,000 people. The stock market's up. The American dollar's up. All the things that were not supposed to happen with Trump as president are happening. And the left is having a cow. They don't know what to do. They just, they just don't know what to do. And I was in the conversation sometime over the last week. Or no, I was watching a video. That's where it came from. I think it was a Bill Whittle video I was watching. And they were talking about this whole... Uh, somebody put out on Facebook that um, CEOs of major companies in Canada make 135 times more a year than the average Canadian does. My first reaction was, so what? But then I watched this Bill Whittle thing, and he says, you know, um, they were talking, there was two of them on the, on the tape, and uh, said, one said to the other, he said, you know, for all these people who complain about the wage disparity, they never ever mention Hollywood. Like, how much did DiCaprio make for his last flick? I don't know what the number is, but let's say it was five million bucks. Okay, so for six weeks worth of work, he makes five million dollars. <sighs> How much did the did the what they call the key grip, you know, or the little minions running around behind making all this stuff possible for him to do his job? The people who rigged the lighting, the makeup artists, all this stuff. How much did they make? In some cases, as little as a hundred bucks a day. Isn't it funny how the left never mentions it? When there's wage disparity for their beloved elite, like if you take Beyonce or if you take Madonna or if you take any of these um, mega pop stars who are out there singing and dancing, they got a whole troop of girls behind them or a whole floor full of dancers. How much do they make compared to what Madonna makes at a concert? You think there's no wage disparity there? The hypocrisy is just, and it hit me like a ton of bricks and said, yeah, that makes perfect sense because. You know, a chief executive officer of a private company has a, a board, uh, a stock, um, stockholders and a board of directors to answer for. And the money he's being paid is not yours in the first place. This is different than the sunshine list. Okay, the sunshine list, that's a different animal. We pay that. And we have every right to demand that something be done about that because we're the stockholders. But the point in this case, in the, pri in the case of a private company, if the stockholders think somebody's worth $5 million a year plus bonuses, well, what skin is it off our nose? It just means he's running a successful company and doing a good job. All the power to him. But when it's one of their guys doing it, over on the left, Tom Cruise, pick any actor you want to. Actress. You know, pop star. Nobody ever mentions. Take a, a, a band, let's say the Rolling Stones. How much does it pay the road crew? You know, they make millions a year. If they really wanted to set an example about wage parity, they give these guys a raise, don't you think? But it's a knife that only cuts one way. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll be back with more at the Nick and the Night Show right after this.
We often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org. Of the towns we know, a place we saw the lights turn low, the jigsaw jazz and the get fresh flow, pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts, two turntables and a microphone, bottles and cans, or just clap your hands, or just clap your hands. Where's that? Okay, I've got a um, a clip here by Bill Whittle, and it's called Explaining the Values of the Republican Party versus the Democrat Party. And it runs about seven minutes long, so it's a little longer than I normally like to play, but he's so good at explaining things. I think it's worth listening because when you listen to it, he's really talking about conservatives versus progressives. And that's true no matter what side of the border you happen to live on. So here it is. Let me see if I can make this work. Hang on now. I'll press that. Press that. Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle, and welcome back to the Firewall. Well, election season is upon us again, and so I thought I'd provide a handy voter's guide to the Republican Party to help make your decision now, obviously, the one thing that everyone knows about we Republicans is that we're evil. But evil is a little too generic. There's no way to really separate the evil Republicans from the evil corporations that pay pretty much everybody's paycheck, or even the evil military that protects our freedoms and our right to be evil in the first place. So we have to be a little more specific, and the best way to do that is to use a Venn diagram. Now, the first thing that makes Republicans uniquely evil, at least according to the Democrats in the news media, 
is that we're greedy. Second, obviously, we're all fascists, and most importantly, of course, we're all racists. So, just to clarify things for you before you vote, let's start with greedy. According to Democrats, we Republicans are greedy because we're in favor of low taxes and limited government. We think you should surrender as little of your freedom to the government as possible, and you should be entitled to keep as much of your money as you possibly can. We think you're entitled to the rewards of your own work. We also think you know how to spend your own money better than the government who wants to take as much of it as possible. So, as you can clearly see, we Republicans who don't want your money are greedy, and the people that do want to take all of your money, the Democrats, are benign and generous. Just ask them. Secondly, we evil Republicans are all fascists. That's why students on college campuses never let us speak without throwing pies or chanting or screaming at us. According to those young Democrats, fascists are not allowed to speak and must be silenced by force in the name of freedom of expression. The word fascist, by the way, comes from the Latin word fascis, which means a bundle of sticks. It was used by a determined member of the Italian Socialist Party named Benito Mussolini as his metaphor for what he wanted for Italy. All of the individual sticks, which could be broken one by one, tied together into a huge socialist bundle, which could not be broken. Fascists believe in political violence to achieve their ends. Hey, just like the Occupy Wall Street people. Fascists are totally opposed to free market capitalism. Hey, just like the Occupy Wall Street people. They hate religion too, by the way. Instead, fascists believe in a powerful state-regulated economy which can bring just buckets of hope and change to the people of Italy or America. And the only private businesses that they approve of are ones under the direct control of, or at least dependent on, the government, like General Motors, let's say, or Solyndra. But if we're not fascists, at least we Republicans are still Nazis, right? As it turns out, the word Nazi is a German acronym meaning National Socialische Deutsche Apparatheparte, or NS. DAP. Translated directly into English, Nazi means, no wait, hold on, that can't be right. It means National Socialist German Workers' Party. Well, what do you know? Turns out you can't spell Nazi without Socialist Workers' Party. Isn't that interesting? No. We, anti-socialist, free market, private property loving, pro-individuality Republicans, are the opposite of both the big state government-controlled bundle of sticks that Italian socialists called fascists, and also the racial socialists called Nazis, and even the international socialists called communists. You know, the guys in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Those socialists, plus the Chinese socialists, have killed about, oh, I don't know, maybe 150 million people so far. I know it's all very confusing, but no doubt Michael Moore will clarify it all in his next $30 million movie about how bad capitalism is. And finally, of course, we Republicans are racist. Now to prove it, let's go back to history again. Our Republican Party was founded in 1854 by anti-slavery, I guess they, they must have been anti-slavery racists, who departed the Whig Party and opposed the pro-slavery Democrats. The first presidential candidate for the Republicans was John C. Fremont, known as the Pathfinder. The Democrats went into full fear-mongering mode on this guy and said to the people, hey, if you elect a Republican, slavery is all but over. Fremont lost, but in 1860, the second Republican candidate, Abraham Lincoln, did win. Between the date of his election and his inauguration on Monday, March 4, 1861, seven of the slave states in the Deep South had left the Union to form the Confederacy, left it, and 
before he was even sworn in as president because they knew that the rise of us racist Republicans meant the end of slavery in America. And it did, too. After the war ended, Lincoln was assassinated by Democratic activist John Wilkes Booth, and then the racist Republicans passed the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, the 14th, providing due process and equal protection under the law, and the 15th Amendment, providing voting rights to blacks. The non-racist Democrats fought all of these things tooth and nail, and when the first black men were elected to Congress as racist, sorry, as Republicans, the Democrats got to work and founded the Ku Klux Klan to make sure it wouldn't happen again for a century. Democrats wrote the odious Jim Crow laws that kept blacks in position of slavery. All of those pictures that you've seen in the 1960s of, of people turning fire hoses and dogs on peaceful black marchers were unleashed by Democrats like Lester Maddox, Bull Connor, and George Wallace. You know, the great anti-slavery writer Frederick Douglass, also a racist Republican, once wrote, I recognize the Republican Party as the sheet anchor of the colored man's political hopes in the arc of his safety. The arc of his safety. Now, of course, Democrats can't argue with this history, mostly because it's true, although that's not usually stopped them before. So, what they say to justify this century of shame is that right around the time that they themselves, modern Democrats, came along, the parties mysteriously switched sides. Now, what really happened was that the loving, decent, progressive racism that's been a hallmark of the Democratic Party took a new and subtle form. They invented a new way to keep black people on the plantation, working for them, like they used to. They gave them free food, free housing, and free medical care in exchange not for a harvest of cotton, but rather a steady annual bumper crop of votes. And the way that they did this was by telling black Americans that the Republicans that had fought and died for their freedom were in fact the real racists because we were against these new shackles like affirmative action and entitlement programs that keep them perpetually bound to their democratic masters. Well, it's true, we are against them. We're against affirmative action because we see people as individuals, not as a bunch of sticks good and bad individuals, and we don't see black people as being so inferior as to need lower test scores to get into college. We think they can do just as well or as poorly as anyone else. We so-called racist Republicans not only quote that we actually believe the words of that great Republican who said that he had a dream that his four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We believe there is a word for people who are used by other people and provided in return with free food, free housing, and free medical care, and that word is slaves. And the Republican Party was, is, and always will be the party that frees the slaves. So there you go. That's Bill Whittle explaining the difference, the fundamental difference between Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and progressives. And isn't it funny when you listen to him talk, I'm reminded of things like Oka. I'm reminded of things like Caledonia. I'm reminded of things like um, protests on uh, <clears throat> anywhere you see unrest, all the, the Occupy movement and all that, the things that he pointed out. All this stuff happened here, too. And it's the same crowd. It's the same crowd. Whether or not, uh, like he was talking a lot about slavery, but look at our natives. Are they not really actually enslaved by 
uh, affirmative action programs or, you know, we call it Indian and Northern Affairs. We call it reservations. We call it, you know, by this whole thing, you realize that providing the natives the tax-free status, as an example, that really it's more of, it's a form of slavery because, not that I want to pay taxes, don't get me wrong, but by making them cling to the reserve to maintain their tax-free status or carry their card, you take away from them any idea of going out and trying to make a better life on their own. You rob them of their ability to go out and actually earn for themselves a decent living and come and, and by so doing become more dignified and, and gain a level of dignity they haven't had in a very long time. And when I say that, I, I understand I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but the bottom line is there's more dignity in providing for yourself than there is in continuously and generationally accepting help or money um, because that is from someone else because you're a member of a victim group. I mean, sooner or later, that, that you know, the, this whole white man guilt, this whole idea, okay, you have to pay me so much money because your grandfather was mean to my grandfather and therefore you owe me. Sooner or later, that's got to come to an end. And until it does... What looks like a benefit is actually an enslavement. And how does anybody get ahead in that scenario? That's why I played that clip because I'll tell you, uh, Bill has a way of putting it. I don't know how, uh, if the sound quality wasn't that great, then I apologize. But you can go and look it up on YouTube and, and uh, re-listen to it if you'd like. But boy, I'll tell you, that, that one really kind of hit home to me because I, I think about the people in Attawapiskat and, and some of the other Native reserves, and even in the ones that are doing okay, like there's one out, out my way, Golden Lake. Uh, you know, it's not, it's no hellhole by comparison to places like Attawapiskat, but there's there's a lot of people there that uh, you know, they're they're stuck to the reserve and they they really like their tax free status. I can understand that to a certain point, but at some point. What's that old saying? You've got to leave the reservation if you want to make your own mark. If you want to truly become your own man, and you have to cut the apron strings, whether the tax the apron strings come from mother's apron or whether they come from the tax man, sooner or later, you have to accept responsibility for yourself. And I don't see how they get anywhere near that while they go through those kinds of things. Okay, we'll take a break. Uh, for the top of the hour, and then when we come back, we'll have more on the Nick at Night Show right after this.
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right. Welcome back to the Nick at Night Show, folks. The numbers, of course, if you want to give me a call, please do. 343-700-4390 or 844-562-4766. That's 343-700-4390 or 844-562-4766. You can also drop me an email at nick at latenightcouncil.com. A couple of things. There is one thing I do want to get to. Um, one of the things that every radio show requires, whether it's online or an open air, is sponsors. We've got to pay the bills somehow. So what I'm doing is I'm putting out an appeal um, for people who, if you have a business and you'd like to advertise uh, on the Naked Night Show, um, please uh, get a hold of me. You can do it through Facebook. You can send me an email, however you want to do it. And we can discuss the terms and, you know, the, 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 the logistical details of how to do it and what it's going to cost, that kind of thing. But it, it's to a point now where we have to um, have some revenue coming in because for uh, both John and I, uh, there's a certain amount of money required to do this every month. And we need to find ways to generate that revenue if you want to keep the show on the air. Now, as it stands now... Uh, by the third weekend of January, I'm going to have to make a decision about whether or not I can continue. I want to continue. I certainly enjoy doing this. It's a lot of fun. And I like to think that uh, we can make a difference, um, you and I, when we work together, uh, by me bringing you information and you acting on it. We can certainly do that. But I am looking for people uh, to um, join us as partners on, uh, on, on the advertising side here. Um, in order to make this a viable and continuing program. Now, I've been talking to John a lot in the last little while um, about what's going to happen with him. Uh, from what I've been able to understand, it sounds like John will be off for another six months. Uh, right now, he's caught up very much in uh, with his church 
um, and those kinds of things, and that, as a pastor, is where his priorities lie. So he may be back in six months. He'll make a decision at that point. But in the meantime, I am hoping to be able to continue, and it all will come down to generating enough revenue to be able to cover the cost of the of uh, the broad the weekly broadcast um, and uh, <clears throat> my travel back and forth and things like that. So it's it's not hundreds of thousands of dollars that we're looking for by any stretch, but it does take some revenue to be able to continue that. So if you want to participate, if you want to become a um, um, a partner, if you own a business or if you know a business, uh, send me an email or, or you know, uh, get a hold of me on Facebook or something like that. Let me know, and then we'll get together and uh, see what we can work out and uh, put something together for you. Uh, we'll do all the work as far as getting the ad ready and so on, just like the ads that we run now. Uh, you can certainly, you know, it gives you an idea of what, what is possible. So uh, I certainly want to put that appeal out. If you want to, um, if you enjoy what we're doing here, then please help us continue. And the way to do that, of course, is if you're a business, you can sponsor ads and so on. They're they're not. Uh, I don't think they're very expensive, but uh, it all depends on you know where you're at and that kind of thing. But we can certainly work with that. So uh, if you know anybody who's in that category or if in that category yourself, send me a uh, an email note, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Or you can do it through Facebook. Just private message me, and we'll uh, set up a time to get together or chat on the phone or whatever it takes and see if we can keep this going because uh, I do have to make a decision sooner or later, and uh, we're going to give it the month of January, and we'll make a decision at the end to decide whether or not uh, we'll be able to continue. So that's that. Now, uh, getting back to the news, uh, (laughs) man, I'm telling you, I'm just thinking of the boy king here. There's a story I want to share with you. And this is from the CBC, and it says, Analysis. Stakes high for Trudeau's world, Trudeau as world's last major progressive leader standing. Written by Aaron Wary. Okay, well, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this is enough to make you crazy. Now, I, I've talked about him in the previous hour, but the U.S. vice president came up. Uh, Joe Biden, and uh, was visiting Ottawa and gave a speech in the Parliament. So let me share with you uh, a couple of slices of this story to give you an idea of uh, how uh, the elite um, socialists look at Justin Trudeau, and it might explain a little bit of of, um, his behavior. Certainly not all of it, not by any stretch, but some of it anyway. If the next 12 months seem particularly pivotal for Justin Trudeau's leadership of Canada, it's because of what's happened everywhere else in the year of Brexit and Donald Trump. A month to the day after Trump's U.S. presidential victory, Democratic Vice President Joe Biden came to Ottawa and anointed Justin Trudeau. That's one way to put it, I suppose. The world's going to spend a lot of time looking to you, Mr. Prime Minister, as we see more and more challenges to the liberal international order than at any time since the end of World War II. You and Angela Merkel, Biden said during a state dinner, invoking the German Chancellor. Vive la Canada, he concluded, because we need you very, very badly. Ten months earlier, the Center for American Progress proclaimed that in a world seeking change, Trudeau and, its, and Italy's Matteo Renzi would be the new paragons of the progressive movement. Renzi then staked his career on a referendum to implement significant political reforms. Three days before Biden toasted Trudeau, Renzi was toast, resigning in defeat. 
That left Trudeau as perhaps the last major progressive leader on earth. Thank God. Uh, Merkel is officially a conservative. No, she's not. She might That might be the label she carries around, but she is not a conservative. All around him are concerns for the very notions he campaigned on. Shared prosperity, inclusion, diversity, and political change. Trudeau can claim some prescience, but after 2016, there is a new pressure that he succeed. By Trudeau's own diagnosis, holding the liberal order together depends on the economy. When progress stalls, fear moves forward. Well, it depends on the kind of progress you're talking about. When progress stalls and fear moves forward, Trudeau said in Montreal on February 20, 2014, addressing the opening night of a Liberal Party convention. After criticizing Quebec Premier Pauline Marois' char Charter of Values, Trudeau moved to the economy and a critique of Conservative policies. Now get this. We have a real problem. The middle class is in trouble. People haven't had a real raise in 30 years, while inequality, inequality has increased and household debt has exploded. Gee, I wonder why. Could it be that the tax rate and the burden of running the government has gotten to the point where it's crippling Canadians? In other words, the very things he's blaming the conser conservatives for, and the conservatives, they certainly weren't, you know, the, look, they made, it, they made mistakes too. But compared to the progressive things that, the, and when I say progressive, that's pejorative. That's, I'm not saying that to be flattering. Today, the word progressive should be like a curse word. But anyway, he wants to go out and, and you just, like, listen to that, the, the whole thing about the, the uh, where did it go? Where did it go now? Talking about politics, uh, where did it go? Where it was talking about the, um, oh, yes, shared wealth. <laughs> shared wealth, that's another word for communism. You know, the, have you noticed? Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm the only one, but there's. I've noticed a shift in the language, not just in the fact that people can't spell anymore, but the fact they're using words in ways that were they were never intended, or they're using new words to mean different things, like this whole idea of sharing wealth. Okay, um, that's another word for communism. This whole idea of populism, a return of populism. Do you know what populism? What word that is replacing? It's called patriotism. It's called love of your country. It's wanting for your politicians to look after the country first before you go worrying about somebody else in some other far-flung corner of the world giving them millions of dollars that we'll never see again. While in our own country, we have places like Fort Mac that there's been no help, almost no help at all from the, from the federales. You know, that's what the word populist now means. They've taken patriotism out. Like, ask yourself, when's the last time you ever heard the word patriotic or patriotism come out of Justin Trudeau's mouth when he's talking about Canada and Canadians and himself? It doesn't happen. Because he doesn't care. He's come out and said he's a post-nationalist. You know what that means? He doesn't believe in the nation-state anymore. He thinks the U.N. is the way to go. Well, I got news for you. The U.N.'s the last place I want to go. Anyway, two years later, Trudeau, as prime minister, made the same argument in an op-ed for The Economist, now with reference to Brexit, who, those who promised to build walls instead of tearing them down. You know something? Walls have purposes. Did you ever think of that? Not every wall was like the Berlin Wall. Some walls 
Like, would you tear down a wall in a prison? No, because you want to keep the bad guys in. Right? Not every wall is a bad idea. The wall on the U.S. southern border actually makes sense because they're being overrun with illegal aliens down there. And something's got to be done. And there's actually signs of, of um, there's a story in the news tonight about how uh, Donald Trump is looking for information, technical details and all that, of the surveillance systems and everything that's along that 400-mile stretch where they're going to build that wall. In other words, he's laying the groundwork to build the wall. He's going to keep that promise by the looks of things. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, the progressives who believe believes in both active government and liberalized economic policy has the most reason to worry about a world about a wor- to worry about a turn toward populism. That's what I was talking about a moment ago. How populism is actually patriotism. How it's actually people wanting to care about their own country. So how to solve the problem? Well, first of all, why is there a problem in the first place? There's nothing wrong with being being patriotic. That's me interjecting. Trying to boost the economy. This is how you do it, apparently. In its first 14 months, his government drew the basic outline of an economic vision, including expanded benefits that skew towards lower and middle incomes. Cut taxes. That's what you do if you're a federal government. You cut taxes. You... Make the government smaller so it's less of a burden on lower and middle income people to, to have to shoulder that burden to run the country. It's not rocket scientists we're talking about here. All right. Two major energy products were projects were approved and a price on carbon was announced as a massive instru- in, and a massive infrastructure investment was why is a price on carbon supposed to help the lower and middle class? That just makes everything more expensive. I mean, look, if somebody's shopping at Giant Tiger, nothing against Giant Tiger. They have a place in the market to fill, and they're doing a good job of that. But if people, look, the clientele there are not people driving Porsches and Ferraris. They're the lower to middle class. And when they go into in there, and all of a sudden, they're, whatever, the T-shirt they were going to buy or the pair of shoes they were going to buy are 3 or $4 more because of a carbon tax just or a price on carbon how does that benefit them the prime minister has been busy wooing international investors and seems keen to do more business with china well aren't we complaining about that's where all our jobs are going the next year starting perhaps with the budget in the spring presents an opportunity to fill out a comprehensive agenda Finance Minister Bill Monroe's Advisory Council on Economic Growth has been considering options since June with the goal of raising the median household income to $105,000 by 2030. An innovation agenda, a poverty reduction strategy, and a review of the tax system are all on the table. Oh, my good Lord. I just, sometimes I run out of ways to describe this. Sometimes I just run out of words. This stuff, it, it's not, you know something, I think we sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that politicians actually know what they're talking about. And I'm talking about on the whole. I mean, look, they look good in their Armani suits. You know, they, they, uh, most of them are lawyers, so they're relatively eloquent. But when it comes down to your 
trying to understand the common man. This is why I think you know, I had I was saying to somebody tonight or earlier today I had a conversation, and I had said to somebody because one guy said there's a particular politician who's so wealthy he doesn't draw a salary, he doesn't need it. I said, well, you know, having people like that in politics probably is not a bad idea from a taxpayer's point of view because they're not they're not they don't draw a salary so that you, you're not paying them right. They're doing it because they want to, not because they have to. And then on the other end of the scale, you should have some politics who come from politicians who come from some very humble backgrounds. I was reading the story of um, uh, there's a book out called The Cold Fire, and it's a book all about John F. Kennedy, Lester B. Pearson, and uh, uh, Diefenbaker, and how those three kind of molded the last half century for a lot of the world during the Cold War. And the battlefield was the Canada-U.S. relations. And Diefenbaker came from some pretty austere backgrounds and turned out to be one of the best prime ministers we've ever had. So I think that there's a certain amount, you, 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 to try to strike that blend between people who don't need the money and understand how to deal with money to people who know what it's like to have nothing or very little and pull themselves up by the bootstraps and understand the value of hard work and ethics, and, and honesty, and, and integrity. Those are rare birds these days. Anyway, so, in a recently published, um, in a recently published paper, Miles Korak, an economist with, at the University of Ottawa and a former member of an advisory council the Liberals convened in 2015, suggests changes to the temporary foreign worker program, new measurements to track poverty, and the introduction of wage insurance to assist people who are take who take lower paying employment after losing long standing jobs all of this is nothing but reconstituted socialism they're just taking from one they're robbing from the rich to give to the poor look i'm not i feel for people when they when they lose their job i went through that almost a year ago i haven't had a job job since so it's not that I'm out there rolling in the dough and just, you know, smoking stogies, sitting around feeling all oh, those poor people. You know, it's, I know what it's like to have to struggle to make ends meet. But the point is, that's not the government's fault, nor is it any of their business. It's up to me to get out the door and make money. It's up to me to make sure that I'm, I'm the one out there who's working hard and trying to make a living. Now, there's always going to be people who can't for reasons beyond their, circ- beyond their control. I'm not in- uncompassionate, and I think there should be some kind of social safety net to look after them. But if you have to take a lower-paying job, okay, you have to. That's just the way it is. But people, the government isn't there to solve every problem. Most of the time, they're the source of most of our problems. <sighs> anyway, it goes on and on and on, but the mean... But in the bottom, bottom end of the article, the meaning of Brexit and Trump. In the wake of the U.S. election, interim conservative leader uh, Rona Ambrose mused that Trump's victory was a message to liberal politicians whose big policies don't help working people. Amen to that. During a debate in the House of Commons in November, conservative MP Michelle Rempel invoked Brexit to explain how liberal policies like increasing Canada pension plan would be viewed in the struggling communities of Alberta. Even if such talk might be dismissed as opposition politicians trying to score points, the last remaining paragon of progressive governance might not be in a position to casually dismiss the possibility of a populist revolt. There it is again. This, you can tell this is written by the CBC. 
anyway, so I just thought I'd share that with you because it's it's there's a trend here that a lot of it's you know what it's got the social fat cat scared. It's got those who thought they were running things really nervous because of that last line that I just read, a populist of revolt where the people, the average person, those who are patriotic, who work hard, who play by the rules and play to want to play to win, you know, and provide for themselves a better lifestyle than the one they have now. And so doing lift everybody else up. Those are the people they're afraid of. Donald Trump's just a poster boy. He just happened to be the guy at the right place at the right time. And you know what? I don't think that wave is going to stop at the border. Who's going to be our Donald Trump? I don't know. Maybe there won't be any one person. Maybe it'll just be a fatigue with socialism, a fatigue with failed policies, a fatigue with overtaxation without anything to show for it. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, if I, <laughs> if I thought that it couldn't, <laughs> I had a, now I, I'm kidding when I say this, but I, I was thinking about having a protest down in Queens Park that actually included pitchforks and lanterns. <laughs> but <laughs> I, can, I can't see anything that could possibly go wrong with that. I'm kidding, of course. I would never actually condone that kind of activity, but you gotta—you you must admit—it's it's an interesting thought just to kick around in your mind what that would look like. Can you imagine fifty thousand people walking up Young Street, all carrying pitchforks and lanterns? The kind of visual image that would be. Oh man, <laughs> I think you'd very quickly hear from all the media news outlets. Well, the premier's not in uh, not in Toronto right now. She's vacationing in, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah, she probably would would want to be. Uh, no, I don't condone that kind of thing, but uh, I can see why people would get that frustrated. Uh, there is an upcoming um, protest in May. I don't have the date. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have the date in front of me, but it's about a carbon. It's about the carbon tax. Now, I think the only way to defeat the carbon tax is to def- defeat the government and put put a government to put a government in place that will repeal it. I don't think this government has anything. You know something? This government has no interest in repealing carbon taxes. It didn't have any interest in repealing the Green Energy Act. It certainly had no interest in getting to the bottom of all the scandals it's involved involved in. So why would they repeal this? And when you look at Kathleen Wynne's numbers, she's got the lowest approval rating in recorded history. I mean, oh, man. There's just, uh, I think if you polled 100 people, only 14 think she's doing a good job, and most of those would be people who work in her office. And even then I would sometimes wonder. So she's not very popular. So the question has to become, okay, either she is so deluded and so blind to what's going on in the world around her that she simply refuses to pay any attention to those who are trying to tell her it's time to go. Now, I don't want her to go. 
Not yet. I want her to stay this. The other side of that coin, though, is I sometimes wonder if she's staying because she knows that there is a reward at the end of it. What that is, who's promised it to her, I have no idea. Well, I've got some ideas, but I got nothing to prove. I couldn't prove it. But if you look at um, what happened with um, uh, Dalton McGinty, he left office. Not only did he leave office, he left town. Where did he go? He went down to a, a U.S. university to teach ethics and politics. Yeah, that was cool. I'll bet you that really went over well. Can you imagine him teaching ethics? Anyway, so there must be something keeping her in office besides this blindness. Because, look, she's not a stupid woman. She's not. She doesn't care about Ontario. She does not care about anybody but herself. She's a huge egomaniac. There's no, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt of that. I mean, but to say that she's unintelligent or stupid, I don't think that's a, a, a rational understanding of the situation. Uh, she's smart, all right. She's a, uh, for, from a point of view of getting elected, she's been pretty successful. Although it won't work for her the next time around, that's for sure. All right, we'll have more right after this on the Nick and Night Show. Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com.
Okay, on a different story, on a different front, if the Order of Canada had any meaning left, and I don't think it did ever since Morgenthaler got his award, I think that it was cheapened to the point of a trinket uh, once that happened. But if you think there's any value in it, I wonder what you think of this. Michael Ignatieff was named to the Order of Canada on Friday for his contributions to the advancement of knowledge in as, as a human rights scholar and reporter. The former Liberal Party of Canada leader was appointed to the order alongside 99 others, including former Supreme Court Justice Morris Fish, former Information Commissioner of Canada Robert Marlowe, and longtime public servant and academic Paul Booth, and a former Senator and former Senator Hugh Siegel. I'm delighted to recognize these new recipients of the Order of Canada in this milestone year, said Governor General David Johnson in a release. Besides marking Canada's 150th anniversary, uh, 2017 marks the 50th anniversary of the Order. So let's be inspired by the example set by these remarkable Canadians and use this occasion to build a smarter and more caring country in which every individual can succeed to the greatest extent possible as long as they're liberal. Didn't quite say that, but what in God's name did Michael Ignatieff ever do to get the Order of Canada? He only lived here long enough to be the leader of the uh, Liberal Party until he got defeated by Stephen Harper, and then he went back down south again. Doesn't the Order of Canada mean you're a Canadian and you actually live here at least part of the time? Look, if 99, look, one of the things that has always bothered me, believe it or not, I got the Diamond Jubilee Medal, the Queen's 75th Anniversary Medal. Somebody nominated me, and my MP, uh, I actually was on the air at the radio station, and came in and, and uh, presented it to me while I was on the air. I thought, oh, that's nice. And then I got thinking about, what did I do to deserve this medal? Because you see, to me, rewards should usually follow some kind of concrete action. I remember when I was a night member of the Knights of Columbus, oh, back 20 years ago. That's a great organization, by the way. And I was uh, on the executive uh, back in when I was still living down in Tilbury. And the Grand Knight, I was the pro-life um, uh, member of the executive who looked after pro-life affairs. And every meeting, he'd say to me, okay, so what is anything new to report on the pro-life front? And there was nothing. It's just, you know, there was not much going on at the time. And I'd say, I have nothing to report. So during the whole cycle while I was there, I didn't do anything. Well, he called me up in the fall or in the, over the summer um, and said, I'd like you to uh, um, stay on as a member of the council uh, uh, as the executive. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't feel like I did anything. He said, oh, you did a great job. I said, no, not really. I didn't do anything. So I turned him down. Because don't tell me, look, I'm not trashing the guy. It just it just shows you how little you have to do to be seen to be somebody who actually does something in life. When you compare it to somebody to to ninety percent of the other people out there, if you're going to give a medal, don't insult people by giving it to them for nothing. 
there's there's two ends of this. One, don't have an award you never award, like the Victoria Cross. We haven't given one out since 1945. I cannot believe after 10 or 12 years in Afghanistan, nobody earned a Victoria Cross that wears a Canadian uniform. Just, I'm sorry. I know they got, a bunch of them got um, uh, Stars of Valor, which is the one just below the, cro- the Victoria Cross. But <clears throat> nobody won it, which which is where I come from when I say, well, don't have an award you're never going to give out. But on the other end is, what's the point of an award that everybody gets, right? It just it doesn't make any sense to me. So Michael Ignatieff has done nothing for Canada. Nothing. Nothing that 100,000 other people haven't done. A lot of people report on human rights. There's all kinds of them. Some of them actually go to places where it's dangerous to do it. They didn't get it. I just, I just wonder, you know, wouldn't it be nice? There's the old saying, the harder the battle, the sweeter the victory, right? And when you, if you're involved in sports, take boxing just as an example. And you're watching, you know, if you're a boxer or if you like to watch boxing and you're watching a fight where two guys are pretty evenly matched and they're really going at it and they're, they're classic boxers, they're not fighting dirty, they're just, Putting on it, they're putting on a great show, and these guys are just slugging it out. And finally, at the end, one guy wins, just barely. The fact he won is what matters, but the fact he had to work that hard to win is where the joy of victory comes from. It wasn't a cakewalk. Look, if you're playing a game, if you're playing a sport. Imagine, uh, let's take the, the Ottawa Senators are playing the uh, well-known uh, midgets. Okay, the two teams go out on the ice, and of course the Senators blow them away, 74 to nothing. Okay, kind of fun, yeah, yeah. How many times do they have to play the well-known midgets before it becomes embarrassing? I'm using an extreme example, but the point is, there's no, first of all, the Senators don't learn anything. The kids, they lose their enthusiasm for the game because they're just getting slaughtered every time they go out there. They can't learn anything because the skill set is so far apart. In other words, unless there is something of, unless you're competing against somebody or you're struggling through something that tests you, that actually makes you stretch and grow, and that's your reward. Like if you get the Pulitzer Prize for writing, um, you know, a great book that actually has content and, and substance and merit to it. And it took you five years to write the book because of all the research that went into it. Okay, you deserve the Pulitzer Prize. But if you get the Nobel Peace Prize, like Obama did, for absolutely nothing, what's the point of the, of the Peace Prize then? It becomes meaningless. And I think too many times in our culture, we now have this everybody's got to win mentality. It's not fair if one team wins over the other. Well, if everybody wins, then nobody does. I love that line out of the movie The Incredibles, said by the bad guys. If everybody's a superhero, then nobody is. Because he's absolutely right. You can't all, not everybody can win all the time. 
And how do you learn anything if all you ever taste is victory? If you never taste defeat, how do you know how good victory tastes? It's just more of this kind of nonsense that goes on and is perpetrated. And all of this is out of this stupid article about, uh, about Michael Ignatieff getting an award he didn't earn. Like, don't, don't waste, don't embarrass people. Don't shame the award. Because the idea of the Order of Canada, I think, is a great one. <clears throat> to recognize great Canadians for amazing accomplishments and real contributions in the real world that have made other people, a lot of other people's lives better. That's, to me, the standard. Michael Ignatieff? Henry Morgenthaler? Really? So it's just more head-scratching. It's more... <sighs> It's like making sure that everybody wins the Grey Cup every year. You know, nine teams, they all get it. They all, they all win the Grey Cup. Can't be done. It, even if you could do it, it loses its value. It just becomes a, a bobble you put on. It's like uh, when, you come, when your kid comes home from track and field wearing an, uh, a participation medal. Mommy, mommy, look what I got. Oh, what's that? Well, I participated today. Well, so did everybody else. Yeah, isn't that great? Well, I suppose. Now, if they come home with, you know, they won the 100-yard dash, okay, great, good job, well done. You must have worked hard for that. But that's not the way our, our system works these days. This is just enough to make you crazy. <sighs> All right. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll have more right after this. <laughs> often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org.
Okay, three four three seven zero zero forty three ninety eight four four five six two four seven six six. That's three four three seven zero zero forty three ninety eight four four five six two four seven six six. All right, in the last segment of the show, we've got about another fifteen minutes here. From Czechoslovakia, you want to talk about completely opposite reactions to the threat of terrorism. This is remarkable. And it shows what can happen. And look, I don't know whether this would be... Well, let me just share it to you and you make up your own mind. Interior Ministry, this is from the Czech Republic. Interior Ministry wants to give Czech firearm holders the right to use their weapons against terrorists. Presently, over 300,000 Czechs have a firearm license and there are over 800,000 registered weapons in the country. Under Czech law, such a weapon can be used in defense of life and property, although its use would have to be adequate to the threat posed. In other words, if somebody's, you know, knocking on your door, asking for a glass of water, you don't pull out the Glock and blow them away. It's got to be, you know, a serious threat. Now the Interior Ministry is proposing to extend the use of arms in the defense of the state, i.e. in the event of a terrorist attack. Interior Minister Milan Chovanec argues that despite strict security measures being in place, it's not always possible for the police to guarantee a fast and effective intervention and fast action from a member of the public could prevent the loss of many lives. Minister Chovanec says he has reason to believe that the public would welcome such a move. I don't think there's much argument about that. Certainly not there. While we have not seen the Second Amendment in the U.S. solve this problem exactly, we have seen it help a great deal. Once the public is properly empowered, however, there's a good chance that Islamic terror will be eliminated by an armed public who will not tolerate it. Okay, well, first of all, it gets, I'm reminded that, that sheriff from the state of Wisconsin, out of, I believe it was Milwaukee, and he went on, on TV and he said, look, we can't get, we, we, you're going to have to defend yourself. Because when you call 911, we usually three to five minutes away at least, it, it, you know, unless you get really lucky and the car just happens to be outside driving by at the time. The, the, the truth is that what we're going to do, we, we just can't be everywhere at once. So you're going to have to be responsible for your own safety. He's saying the same thing that, that the uh, Czech, off, Czech minister uh, is saying here. He said, look, you know, defend yourself. And if, if um, remember, there was another story out of France where there was an American serviceman on a train who stopped the terrorist attack because he physically got involved with the terrorist and beat the living crap out of him. There was two, actually there was two of them, and I can't remember either man's name, but this was probably about a year, maybe a little longer ago. And how many lives did he save? 
yes, sometimes things go badly, but it's like when they had the, uh, they call it the Batman shooting in Colorado, where the guy, there was a Batman movie was playing, and a guy walked into the theater there and just opened fire. And just, you know, how many people did he kill? Well, if, if three or four people in that uh, theater had had a firearm, maybe they could have saved some lives by killing him before he was able to do all that damage. So there's, there, it, it's an interesting idea that the, this, the, the, because when you look at uh, the, the core, there's something called the V4, and it's the, uh, the group of countries that don't want uh, the kind of uh, situation taking place in the rest of Europe happening in their, in their countries. That's Poland, Czechoslovakia. Um, I forget who the other two are. Anyway, there's four of them. And they've all basically said the same thing. They have almost no immigration. They're not taking in any refugees. Uh, when's the last time you heard of a terrorist attack in Czechoslovakia? As in the, or in the Czech Republic, I should say. Uh, I don't remember one. But this guy's saying, look, if it comes to that, you know, if there's somebody running around blazing away with a firearm and you've got one, take it out and shoot him. You know, the police can't always be there on time, and you could save a whole bunch of lives. Yep. Then you can hear the counter-argument. Yeah, but what if he hits an innocent bystander? Well, if he doesn't shoot the guy, that innocent bystander might get shot anyway. So, in other words, if you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, then go ahead and do. I just think it's an interesting, an interesting look at it from a country other than the United States. Because we all know how, you know, oh, this gun culture down there, oh, oh they're, they, uh, they want to return. And every time it's mentioned here in Canada, oh, we don't want an armed camp, we don't want the Wild West. And yet when you look at the statistics where there is, uh, um, where you have the worst gun, the, the most stringent gun control laws in the United States is where you also have the greatest violence. So... There's again. I'm going back to Bill Whittle here. He did a a, uh, a video once called First with a Bullet," and it explained how actually the the there was one town in one of the midwestern states, and I forget the name he was using, but it we'll call it Smallville, Arkansas, or something like that. And everybody thinks, okay, Arkansas, nothing but a bunch of hillbillies. Uh, if you believe that, then I got a bridge to sell you. Um, but in this town, the murder rate was. Point zero four per hundred thousand, because everybody had weapons. He said they had thirty eight, the three oh eight, thirty odd sixes. They got bows and arrows. They got Bowie knives. They got sharp sticks. They got pointy rocks. They got everything down there, and no crime. They haven't had, you know, virtually no. Uh, you don't have. It's not like Chicago, where you have you know forty fifty people killed over weekends. No big deal. It doesn't even make the news. You know, it's because it's so common. So, anyway, I just thought I'd throw that up there for your consideration because it's one of those deals where you just got to think this thing through. What makes sense? Like, let me ask you this. Let me put this into a Canadian scenario. You're a tourist visiting from some part of, of Ontario on Capitol Hill, and you have a concealed right to carry permit, and you've got a a pistol and a shoulder holster. It's under your coat, and you're legally entitled to carry it. You've done all the safety checks. You've done all that stuff. And you're near the cenotaph two years ago. And this puke comes out of nowhere 
and shoots Anthony Carrillo in the back. And you're standing 25 feet away. Would you pull your pistol and use it? And stop him from getting up to Parliament Hill? Or hurting anybody else in the process? I know I would. So I'm just using that as an example. Something to consider. Something to think about. Because I'll tell you. That is something that's, you know, now, again, it doesn't take everybody. Not everybody has to have a firearm. If you don't, there's people out there who genuinely don't like them. Absolutely. And I get it. There's lots of stuff in life I don't like, but I don't think other people shouldn't have. I think with the right training. As a matter of fact, if I was Minister of Education, you know what I would do? I would make, um, make it mandatory for graduation for every student coming out of high school in this country to have to go through a firearm safety course. So they'd have some idea, other than give them a source of information other than Hollywood about what firearms are all about, what they can do, and what they can't. You want to have some fun sometime? Go to a range and get somebody to actually show you how to properly shoot a pistol and see if you can hit anything. Good luck. It isn't the same as Hollywood. You know, these guys waving around and shooting people from miles away with a pistol and, you know, just it's just nonsense. Anyway, I just want to uh, kind of throw that in the, in the mix to end the show with, and that does wrap it up for me tonight. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I certainly hope that you'll consider my... Uh, uh, consider advertising with us if you are a uh, business of any kind that uh, you know is inter- it likes what we do here at, at the Nick at Night Show. I'd love to hear from you, so send me an email or a um, uh, contact information. You can or through Facebook or something along that line. Please do that, and we can work out some kind of deal. And let's see if we can keep this show going because uh, we do have to have some revenue to make things work and pay the bills around here. All right, that wraps it up for me tonight, and it, we'll, we'll say goodnight. So it will be Caritas et Amor. They are CBS. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace, and may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Of all the money that I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done. For want of wit To memory now I can't recall So fill to me the parting glass Good night and joy be to So fill to me the parting glass And drink a health whatever befalls 
Then gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. Of all the comrades that ere I had, they're sorry for my going away. And all the sweethearts that ere I had, they'd wish me one more day to stay. But since it fell into my lot that I should rise and you should not, I'll gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. Fill to me the parting glass and drink a I'll see.